I think we're heading into a world where VCs read DOS copy tell and got the wrong impression. Welcome to Tradeoffs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and Profit Wells Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about the recent influx of raising. Ultimately, execution is what matters. I don't think that will ever change. If that company that can go adjacent never goes adjacent, they're not a threat. The world of 10X products. It's about mapping the market in that way and making sure you own the bottom. Strategic investing. In a couple of these cases, they just doubled down on their existing investments and put more money in. And the emotion of raising. I don't know. I think there's some change, fear, but it's not, it's not intense. Another episode of Trade-Offs. Welcome back, everybody. We got some feedback that we don't introduce ourselves. Uh, so some people found this and didn't know who we were. So that means we're not just talking to our friends anymore. But Patrick Campbell, CEO of ProfitWell. Heaton, co-founder and CEO of FYI. Awesome. Cool. We're not going to explain what we do at all. We're just going to explain our LinkedIn tags, basically. But Heaton, what's going on, man? How How's the week going? Lots of stuff going on in startup land, but it's really good. And, yes, startup you know, land, I, man. Yeah. Well, oh, Sorry. But yeah, startup no, land, it's, uh, yeah, the funding is getting a little nuts. Like I thought it was nuts like a few weeks ago and then it just keeps coming. So I guess this is the new normal. I guess that's what's kind of interesting and, and it's it's got us thinking a lot and it's got you thinking a lot. So maybe we dive into tale as old as time, talking a little bit about funding and uh, what, what's your take on the market. And, and I think you, because you're a little heavier investor than I am, as well as, um, you know, you've taken funding in kind of a bootstrapped as well as a non-bootstrap way. Um, which is now a little oxymoronic as well. But what's what's your take mm-hmm. on man? What's your what's your main thesis going on right now? I mean, I think it's interesting to kind of think of this as a new normal. I don't know if it's a new normal. I don't think the investors or the market knows if this is a new normal. What I would say is there's a lot of cash around that needs to be put into companies. And now with I would say a little more clarity on vaccines and us kind of you know, being able to open up, it's probably giving people a little bit of sort of, oh, I, we should go make some investments. I would say that there's a little more stability in the world mm-hmm. that, you know, now that we're a year into this COVID thing uh, or Corona thing, um, whatever thing you want to call it, we're just seeing the kind of the activity bubble up and some of the companies that were basically growing fast and probably closed their rounds, to be honest, a month or two ago are announcing it mm-hmm. in a little bit of a wave because that's what usually happens. You don't always announce your round. Sometimes you never announce it until later. Other times you announce it when it's convenient for you. So a good example of this is I know of a company that announced their seed round a year later from when it actually happened. Again, I don't have a judgment of whether that's right or wrong, but that that does definitely tune your kind of calibration of like, is it recent? Was it in the last month? Was it in the last three months? Was it in the last six months? Was it in the last year? Or was it just announced right now? I'm not saying any of the large ones that we heard about recently were like a year old, right? They were probably a few months old. So timing is an interesting thing when it comes to funding announcement and timing of the actual funding, because you're trying to time a bunch of stuff, right? Like maybe time the announcement of five executive hires and like $50 million raised, right? Or whatever it may be. Um, So that's one kind of category here. I think it's just worth contextualizing um, because it feels like there was a bunch of stuff that happened that is now just announced. So it feels like it just happened. The fact that it's announced now, though, means that we all know that it happened. But that also means that the venture community and the investors that could have written the checks that were put into some of these companies, they knew a while ago, like months ago. And if you look at like investor Twitter or tech Twitter, you'll see that about two or three months ago, 
there were a lot of tweets about, oh, I thought things were going to slow down, but they haven't. They're, in fact, busier than ever. Mm. And the reason for that, the way I would say it is, and what I've learned over the last, I guess, 15 to 18 years of watching venture with my own maturity and immaturity early on, is that there are massive waves that you see. So I'm actually not surprised that these are announced right now. I'm not surprised at some of the funding rounds right now because if you look at this wave between March of last year and March of this year, the world changed. And a number of companies were able to capitalize on that that were young and that were startups. Uh, I think Hopin is one example. Substack is another one. You could even throw Clubhouse in that kind of category. Um, and even some of the smaller companies that are kind of smaller rounds, but still like Series A plus also fell in this category of seeing a tremendous amount of what looks like growth, um, which I'm not saying is not, as a result of a bunch of the sort of impact from the world changing. And again, Hopin, Clubhouse, Substack, all were yeah. beneficiaries of this from a just business standpoint. And now we're seeing kind of the realization of that. Because the thing is, like, if you're a founder, and especially if you've already raised money, because the rounds we're talking about aren't seed rounds, they're actually Series A plus rounds that are significant in the, you know, mid-10-figure range, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. And what we're basically seeing is the growth that happened and these companies capitalizing on the fact that they can raise now because the growth is really good. And when your growth is good, you should raise money. Um, if you've already raised money, right? It's very simple. Um, and when your growth is not good, that doesn't mean you shouldn't raise money. It just means it's harder to raise money. Mm. So in a way, from a founder seat perspective and viewpoint, if money's being thrown at you, especially if you already raise money, you're going to take it and you're going to raise as much as you possibly can in the environment we're in right now. So let me share my thought on the environment we're in right now. And I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this. The environment I believe we're in right now is that there's a lot of cash sloshing around. Why there's a lot of cash sloshing around, it's not even debatable. There's a lot of factors that are contributing to this, but there's just a lot of cash slothing around. And that could be a whole multi-hour discussion, right? Um, which we don't need to have. So let's say, okay, cash is sloshing around. And I think the other piece that's been under the surface of tech and startups and software and building businesses is it is easier than ever to start. And it just continues to get easier and easier and easier and easier to start, whether it's availability of cash, availability of information, people's desires to think that a startup is cooler than working at a large company or a public company. Like there's a lot of factors there, right? But underneath is it's easier than ever. There's a lot of contributing factors, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, Twilio, I mean, a number of infrastructure changes have fundamentally happened and accelerated even in the last year, which makes it easier than ever to start a company. I don't think there's a time when I could say that and it wouldn't be true. Hmm. Which So there's a bit of either irony or yeah. latent thinking here. So the environment we're in is that. What that means is if I'm a company and I'm already growing pretty fast, there's likely a ton of competitors coming in. And ultimately... And I hate to really say this, but it is more true than ever. More cash increases your likelihood to win the market in an environment where there's always new entrants coming in. There will always be new entrants. Entrants mm -hmm. could be even Goliath gorilla companies coming in. Entrants could be little small companies taking, chopping off pieces of your market. 
So just think about operationally what that means for what you need to do. And if you think about what you need to do, whether you need to staff sales or you need to staff product or you need to build a feature factory with your engineering team or whatever it is, it all requires money. And it probably requires more money than you currently have, period. Mm. <laughs> right? So then logic dictates you should raise as much as money as possible if you can and when you can at every single stage because competition is always heavy and competition is much more consistently going to get funded, especially new competition. New entrants are continuously getting funded in every market. I have a lot of thoughts and I have some questions. So first, on this competition point, I was taking a couple of notes. Like if a competitor raises, let's say a direct competitor, and let's say a substantial amount of money. So you're both kind of brand new companies. They all of a sudden raise 10. Um, you're both kind of on a good trajectory. They all of a sudden raise 50, right? Like depending on the stages that you're both at. If a competitor raises money or... If a non-competitor but a tangential product that could become competition rather quickly raises a significant amount of money, does that mean you should change your mind or you should get on the road raising money by default? Okay. As you know, there are no defaults. So my answer is first, no, there are no defaults. The implication the of- The spirit of what I'm saying, though. The implication, though, of what you're saying- is massive. Because if that's happening in your market, either of those scenarios, there is a tension in your market. Mm -hmm. It means that those investors, but also those operators are thinking about more pieces of the market than they ever had to, because now they have more money to spend. Either which way, it used to be that, oh, they raise money? Great, there's a market here. And that's good for me as a company that raised last or is, is self-funded. I wish that were true now. Mm. And what I mean by that is people say, oh, great, there's a market now. And that's good. I would say that, oh, great. It's going to be harder to win in the market. Even your little piece of it. Because ultimately execution is what matters. I don't think that will ever change. So if, they, if that company that can go adjacent never goes adjacent, they're not a threat. If a company that is large or raised more than you and is a direct competitor, then it all depends on their execution. But here's the thing. I always go back to not the competition, but the customer. And what I worry about is when someone raises a lot of money, they can throw a lot of FUD in the market by just doing a little bit of marketing. And I, I see that happening consistently in so many markets right now. It's not even funny. And what I mean by that is like the difference between product A and B and C in the same market is like very blurry and you can't tell the difference. And so if you have more cash, you can acquire more customers faster. If you have product market fit, true product market fit, then the game is just acquiring as much of the market as you can as fast as possible, yeah. especially for funded companies. I think even self-funded companies should be thinking about how they can do that, but most of them don't. So in this scenario, someone raises more money, they're able to fix all their problems. If your product is better and their product is worse, and that's what you're going to like sit on and say, oh, but our product is better. You have to expect them to improve every area of their business, including the worst, like yeah. product. And if you don't expect that, then you're going to probably be in a world of hurt at some point because your customer is going to see them improving faster than you. Yeah. I think what's also interesting about this, like a perfect example is the project management space. The amount of money like Asana spent in that market, but also like Monday.com, some, some of the like challengers and now even ClickUp. I saw ClickUp ads in a, let's just say second and third tier airport over the past couple of weeks 
like they're everywhere. They're, they're like going everywhere, every pre-roll. I think they're following, you know, and, and ClickUp is interesting for a lot of levels. So we could have a whole discussion. I know about ClickUp. ClickUp, we should do that next week. And maybe because, we need to. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. We should do a couple episodes where we just go deep and kind of fan, fanboy. Uh, fan I mean, I'll, I'll set the stage real quick, but like there are, there are market domination play that I think is. I don't think insane. people expect it. That's what's scary. That's what's funny. Yeah. I think it, it's going to show up it. and we're just going to be like, oh no. Yeah. I have a feeling, um, but we'll save it for another one for the next one. Yeah. But long story short, I think what, what gets interesting is exactly what you're talking about, about market, because we, we were doing some research the past couple of weeks um, for ProfitWell in particular. And we were just thinking through, like, we got to a point where we're, we're looking at it and we're like, no one in our space is heavily raising. There's some tangential people that are kind of interesting, but also no one, no one in our greater space has ever succeeded in the way that we would like to succeed without raising cash, like ever, like it's just never happened. And it's because of the way we need to grow. There isn't like some viral loop here that goes crazy. And, and, you know, we get a situation where it's, you know, small team, really, really large, large revenue. It's like, no, you rack and stack inside sales teams and, you know, you grow in a very, very kind of repeatable ABM kind of driven manner. So that kind of gave us like an interesting thought of like, do we like hire wait a few months for the growth, hire more, wait a few months, or do we just like smooth that out? You know, now that we have a, you know, a product that, you know, has basically zero churn and, you know, two products now that have basically zero churn, which is like, you know, a funny thought. And so I think it's, I worry about what you said about all things being equal. If you have a better product, but your customer or your competitors don't, it doesn't matter. Like if they're raising a ton of cash, it doesn't matter. Like you're not going to have a 10x product. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. There are very, yes. very few spaces where 10x product exists. I think Notion- and, and even that, even that your, your 10x product gets caught super fast. Totally. I think Notion is a brilliant product. I think, I love Notion. There are some things here and there, right? But like every product has that. I love Notion. But everyone's like riding the Rome wave, right? And Notion will continue to kind of ride its wave, which is interesting. But there's this fad mentality. And the way you get over the fad mentality is you raise, you know, a ton of money and just keep pumping it, which I think is great. The one company I think has avoided this a little bit is Canva. I think they have like some some interesting people coming out from the bottom, like competitors. But there's not like they're, – they're going after the high end right now. And no one's really coming at them, which is kind of interesting. They, they control the bottom. Yeah. Many companies – can't do what they did because they don't know how to control the bottom. Yeah. That company's super impressive because they control the bottom. Hmm. Like meaning the bottom, like the bottom bottom. And here's why I say that. I see Canva ads and they're not targeting enterprise or mid-market. They're targeting the SMB today. Yeah. And you're right. They're moving up market for sure. No doubt. Who knows if they actually make that extremely like lucrative for them or not. I mean, I hope it is. And that's all an execution thing. I'm that company is probably one of the ones I'm most impressed by. And and I'm glad you brought it up. Ultimately, though, they own that customer and the brand in their mind. And that customer will have a hard time going anywhere else. Plus, more importantly, they basically keep it. Hmm. You can own something and not be able to keep it, right? Then you don't own it anymore. But they literally own the market for this stuff on the yeah. bottom end and it's solid. And it's a combination of SEO. It's a combination of virality. It's a combination of factors, probably SEO being one of the stronger ones, just like Zapier. In the same way, Zapier owns the bottom. I will say one thing that I think we have learned consistently 
in certain markets, which is those who own the traffic own the customer. HubSpot owns the traffic for marketing terms and more. So many terms. (laughs) They own the customer, at least in the mind, even if that person doesn't become a customer anytime soon. HubSpot is a known brand because of the traffic they get from search. Yeah. Canva has their own version of that for the markets they target. And Zapier has their own version of that for the markets they target and the use cases. And those three companies are really interesting when you say that, like when you want to talk about owning the bottom, these companies own the bottom and they keep the bottom. They don't Mm. lose it. The products they build, the way the services work and the usability of them. HubSpot's probably a little bit of an exception here, but it's gotten, as we talked about last week, like a hundred times better in the years that they've spent effort making the product well. And also it's very difficult to make a gargantuan product like that Mm. extremely good across the board in like overnight. It just takes a long time. Look at Microsoft. So that's my kind of thought, which is like, there are some opportunities where you own the traffic, you own the customer, their mind, and you own the bottom, which is most important. I've always felt like it's about SMB, mid-market enterprise. There's some divide here and there. If you never get to enterprise in your business, like HubSpot doesn't look like they care about enterprise today, but they always have that line item to go after when they feel like it, which is amazing. But when you look at their material, they cap out at 2000 employees in terms of their target customer base. Mm. Um, And so when you think of it like that, it's about mapping the market in that way and making sure you own the bottom. And by HubSpot realizing that and going free with a number of their tools, not just their CRM, but just making more stuff free, they keep they continue to own the bottom. You can't own the bottom unless you have a free product. Yeah. All those three businesses have free products and can continue to own the bottom. So again, not to get off on a tangent, but like there are some companies that are super impressive because to me, because they own that bottom, they continue to own it and dominate there, and then they expand from there. And so we have to see what happens to Canva. One of the challenges with this is the product itself and being able to manage the product development of the product so that it doesn't get unwieldy for the bottom. It doesn't get overpowering for the bottom. It doesn't get unusable for the bottom. Because as you move up market, you add, you introduce more capabilities. Stuff. How do you introduce those capabilities in a way where like the cohesiveness of the user experience is still there and serves these different sort of bosses, so to speak? And this is the challenge. This is the challenge with, with these companies that raise a lot of money. They have an opportunity to own the bottom if they spend that money correctly, which makes it much harder, if not impossible, for a startup to really come in and take any of that away from them. Dropbox is a little bit of an exception um, because I think everyone's taken it away from them now. But that, I think, is, is part of the execution issues and product execution mostly. The interesting thing to kind of point out is it feels as if funding it has been easier it's easier and easier to start a business that will feed you and your family a really great oh. lifestyle oh yeah it is harder and harder to grow a business that you're trying to take public something something of that size i yes. i just think that there was a sweet spot there I don't know if Atlassian or Qualtrics happens in the next 10 years. I don't think it can happen anymore. I don't either. I think that they could. I don't even know if a Zapier, I don't even know if a Zapier can happen. I don't know if a Zapier, like, like things move too quickly now. Which is, which is basically something that, that has taken a little bit of money and turned it into a lot of revenue and profit, right? Basically that's the, 
analogy. We're I don't using even here. know if there's a lot of Zapiers out there in the first place. You know what I mean? I think that we have this bias towards. Yep. Well, they did it. They were able to do it, and it's like yeah, you I talk don't to have Wade. that bias, but uh, well, yeah, but I know but, people do. But you talk to like Wade, and Wade is you know it's a brilliant team. Don't get me wrong; they're, they're execute like mofos. But it's like when you look at it, it's like they clearly are executing in the top one percent, but. There's also a number of different things that are basically adding to to that growth, like the team as like the, the, like there's there's things around that product that work really really well. I don't know if you build like a CRM that can have that type of growth. Like it's just impossible, just given the fact that those types of products require sales teams, right? And if you think about like a Zapier, you think about an Atlassian, they had a network effect built in, and you know then Zapier, like you said, dominated the traffic like no one else. Like everyone's writing case studies on them now, right? And so I don't know, unless you have a product that is high, like team orientation or work orientation, but doesn't require like any top down sale. I think it's, I, I just don't think you can do the hundred million. Oh, we didn't raise any money yet type thing, or it's just going to be infinitely harder than it once was. I want to believe that. Um, cause I think it feels true, but then something will come and surprise us. But, you know, when, when, you, when you think about this for yourself, you're not really trying to optimize to be an outlier, right? You, you're trying to optimize to survive and thrive. Well, yeah, I, I don't know anyone that's, re, that's reasonable that thinks any differently than we do about why Zapier's successful and how that's not really replicatable, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's tactical, like, oh, they did this strategy and that strategy. Same with Canva, similar strategies, frankly. Um, even HubSpot's a very similar strategy. Mm. But but the thing is, those are strategies and then tactics executed really well. But the thing that we, we can't forget is that timing played a big part in all those businesses. Mm. That's true. Right? And, and so one of the things that investment helps you do is basically last long enough. Well, and also gauge your timing, gauge your wave, right? You also have to think about like that from a venture return standpoint and things like that, five, 10 million bucks in revenue is nothing. Like I, I know of companies that have 80, 100, 150 million in revenue, not public, and they're stuck because they don't mm. know what to do next, right? And venture investors are not excited, frankly, for those businesses while they get excited about a $10 million business or a $5 million business that's growing so fast they can see 20 the next year, right? Even though that's nowhere near numbers wise, one is just at a plateau and staying there not growing fast enough. The other is just full of hope, Right. Of what it might do, which is honestly like digging into the processes that investors have around making investments at this point with the money that's sloshing around and so many investors in the market. I think they're doing right or wrong. They're doing what they've done for years, which is invest in trends, invest in things that look really good optics wise and sort of keep the diligence at a minimum. And the reason is if there's heat, heat meaning like if there's like just noise about the company, whether it's doing good or not, every investor, I don't want to say pass the buck on the diligence, but assume someone else is doing it. And because they're in or they're already involved or whatever, they did it, right? And rarely do I actually see really solid work on the diligence. Like yeah, the best diligence is a diligence where if you showed the founder your diligence, they would learn something about their business from it that they didn't know before. Yeah. That's the key. I have never seen that until recently from a few firms, not too many, where I'm like, oh, I want everyone to talk to this firm because even if they say no, the 
founders learn something that's very meaningful about their business. And that's one of the issues. So if you really want to talk about the real issues, I think the real issues are the fact that a lot of deals happen because of heat, so to speak, you know, yeah. and heat is just like where, where the trends are. Like, look, for a while, collaboration was trendy. A lot of different plays in workplace collaboration were getting funded, right? And then it died down a bunch in 2020. And then we didn't know there was a lot of uncertainty uh, with COVID and Corona and all this stuff. And then that sort of evolved into a little bit of a wave that we see right now, which is we went from like, you know, funding a lot of these video plays, especially last year and even before last year, frankly, Events, because of remote yeah. work or whatever. Uh, and then now what's getting funded? Well, virtual workspaces with avatars. Are all of those going to work? No. Are any of them going to work? We don't know. And work means thousands and thousands of companies using these products, right? A breakout is from a customer standpoint. That's what I mean by work, right? Revenue, customers, growth, ubiquity, right? Slack-like adoption. Like these are the expectations of these things. But here's the thing, like it doesn't matter to an investor. They're making one bet out of many and are kind of usually investing around heat, what's hot. Because that just makes their lives easier in a bunch of areas, which is fine, right? Like again... I have no criticism of the way the system works because the system just works as it should, in my opinion. I also think right, and don't. yes, there, there are a lot of people who have a different opinion than me about who gets funded and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the general venture system. I get excited when I see bigger rounds at Series A and B because that means that we're back, we're in the place where we should be, which is adventure capital. Yeah. Right. They're making risky bets, so I, I commend that. I think the issue runs. It comes in when we, we start seeing what we're seeing right now and the diligence is light and that's what we're seeing right now. And we've seen like the worst cases of that, like Theranos and, you know, whatever, all those, there's, there's a ton of examples now, even yeah. books written about it, right? I think what gets interesting too is I just don't think we realize the, it's not inflation, but the influx and where the cash is coming from. So you saw everyone was really aggravated with injuries and Horowitz for a long time because they started you know, basically bullying is a little aggressive, but like they started like buying their way into rounds basically. It's not bullying. It's basically just paying more than anyone else is willing to pay because, because honestly they know the business they're in. But frankly speaking, like, yeah, yeah. And I think it's smart, but that like their competitors would call it bullying, right? Cause it's like, it's smart for you're driving. No, no, totally. But I'm, I'm, my, my point is so much beyond Andreessen. So the thing that you're saying is, so Andreessen started doing that. Then SoftBank comes in and goes, "Hey, hold my beer!" Like you know, we're gonna we're gonna go. And then everyone's complaining about SoftBank, right? And what's been what's been fascinating is you're now starting to see hedge funds. Hedge funds are coming in, who you know, there there are hedge funds that they have one general partner, and their assets under management are larger than Sequoia's entire assets under management, and. You're talking, you know, someone with one $40 billion hedge fund, Sequoia's total assets under management is $30 billion for like 600 people, right? I might be off by an order of magnitude here or there, but it's 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 That's one, fine. It's one yeah. of those things that gets kind of wild because a lot of the hedge funds have come in and they're, they're putting a lot of cash in the market, which is great, obviously, um, for, for a bunch of reasons. But now they're looking at, okay, well, if I put 40% of my assets under management into private venture investing... Basically, I, you know, I don't care about the diligence because it's a numbers game to me. And in addition to that, if I can get two and a half X, 
Like I'm trying to get 30%, 20%, 15% on my entire fund, right? So if I get two and a half X on my, you know, 40%, all of a sudden, like, you know, I do okay on the rest. I'm actually looked at as like a God, you know, to, to, to my LPs or my own private office or however it ends up being. So that, that's kind of rushing into the market too. And I think that you have PE firms, you know, competing with those folks where they can't even get on the phone with you unless you're going to take 60, like 60 million. Like they can't even get on the phone with you. Like these are some of the conversations we've had in the past where it's like, you know, we, we kind of are being nice and like, Hey, we're not raising, but like relationships, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, yeah, our minimum investments, like 50, our minimum investments, 80. And we're like, Oh, what do you look for? You know, in type of company. And, and it's just kind of getting wild across the board. So it's just, it's just super interesting. I think, I think that like the thing I worry about and kind of your take, because, you know, you, you've had more experience with this. I just, where do valuations go? Like, is there just an inflation with valuations? Does it matter? Like, I, I almost want to say it doesn't matter because it's like, you know, the tail just keeps going and going and going. But is there a world where it's like, you know, the angel round all of a sudden gets inflated, everything gets inflated across the board, and therefore you don't really have to worry about it? Or is this a point where, you know, this gets out of fashion? Like, what, what's your take on that? Ebbs and flows. Yeah. Some things are getting low valuations even today because of the businesses they are. Other things are getting high valuations because of the businesses they are. And some of that is justifiable based on metrics and diligence, and some of it's not. And we'll see a correction at some point for some reason. It always happens. It's just finance. Finance is all about cycles, right? This is yeah. finance. It's also about money flow. If this is a good place, like you, ju- the example you just gave, if this is the place to put the money right now, the way to determine whether it's going to remain this way or not is if there's going to be a better place to put money in the future. Or is this just going to be a consistent place where money is now put mm. to, to make a you know return? And if so, then like, yeah, we're probably going to keep seeing this happen. Then you also have strategy, right? So you have Andreessen's strategy versus Sequoia's versus whoever else. Even Sequoia kind of plays the Andreessen strategy in a different way where if if it, it, the, the most impressive companies, and this is where I think there are some differences from Andreessen and what they did before versus what they're doing now, which is basically like they got in GitHub back in the day by basically pulling the card that you mentioned around valuation and an amount of money put in and all that stuff and just outbid everybody is kind of the story, right? That's out there. But in a couple of these cases, they just doubled down on their existing investments and put more money in. It's a little bit of a different strategy and and different level of diligence, different level. And Sequoia, Sequoia does that too. That's what they did in WhatsApp, right? Like, so in a way you're seeing an iteration. That was one of my favorite things I learned. I, I can't remember the guy's name. He was super nice. I really liked him. I think his name's Greg. Um, I think he's a partner over there, but he, um, he explained basically, he's like, yeah, so we buy into the round and we, the first round we always buy into when we bid up and then we follow on. That's where we make like our multiples is all the follow on. Cause we kind of see like, it, it's almost like, it, it's almost how we run some of our sales strategies. We're just like, we don't, we're not trying to get rid of calls. We're not filtering calls right now. Just give us as many calls as possible. We're okay with the AEs talking to some not great leads if all of a sudden that leads to a lead that we wouldn't have had because we were too worried about, you know, kind of the diligence uh, or filtering up front. So yeah, it's, it's super, super fascinating just kind of how people are playing in this market now. That's exactly right. Yeah. I do think, I don't know. I, I, I am. And the reason I know we're talking about this a little bit is because 
we at, at ProfitWell were closer to raising than we ever have before. I keep saying that every year. So I'm just like very slowly ratcheting up the confidence to actually go raise. And what's kind of interesting about it is I'm less worried about, like I'm worried about like company dynamics and these types of things. More often than not, when you ask people, like we've done some little straw polls here and there at the company, like no one is against raising. Like maybe one person is like, yeah, bootstrap, but we've never been that company that's like anti-VC or anything like that. You're not diehard, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, and it's it's just kind of one of those things though where it's we're looking at the goal and we're just like, no one gets there without doing it. Why are we not doing it? Oh, well, we want to figure this and this out. Well, we figured those things out. So like, what are we waiting for? Right. And and we're not quite at the end of this, this, this question, but the froth in the market keeps making it harder and harder. Cause it's like, it's not a now or never. It's just more of like a, you know, let's, let's stop thinking that well, you, you should get it when the getting's good. And if the getting's good and you have the numbers and, and you have the metrics and you have a ability to grow and some, some form of repeatability, especially at your scale, then like, why would you well, not also, raise money if, that's if, also if the you're in a market idea. where you, you feel like you, you should, well, that's the because other, of the opportunity. That's the other thing as well too, which is like, it's not even just the market. It's just more of like, uh, the concepts we had about raising money are, were baked six to eight years ago. And we've had three cycles since then. <laughs> you know, we've had three different cycles of like VC. We're not having any serious conversations right now, but even in the past six months, we've had some conversations and we're just like, yeah, but we want this and we need to get this before we raise. And and like the people are responding are like, you do not need that to raise like a significant portion of money. And we're just like, oh, so I don't know. We're, we're finding we're over-optimized in a bunch of places, which you know, I'd rather be that than under-optimized, but then we feel, we still feel kind of like, I don't know, we're just not like undeniable yet, but I don't think we're ever going to be undeniable because we're just constantly growing. So yeah, it's just a tough, tough thing, tough needle to thread. And we'll have some non-recorded private conversations about that as we already have. I think, you know, one of the things I see from a lot of founders who kind of are debating this in the way that you are is like, there's just a fear of change. And I think it's a rational fear um, underneath it, which is like, if we take on money, what does that mean yeah. for us as a business? And those are the, those are the conversations I tend to have with the companies that just stuff they don't want to talk about, right, um, publicly. But it, it's you know it's 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 really the conversation to have, which is like, are you fearing change? And the answer is always yes. It's always yes. The only time it's no, I'm not fearing the change of raising money from never raising money or never having raised money for this business is when the person's already worked through the fear. And, and realizes that like, oh, this is what it looks like. And this is what I'm going to make it be like after I raise. So for example, and this is like part advice, part like I'm just blown away at the value of this and also blown away at anyone who tries to refute the value of this to me. If I were to raise money before I raise money, I would start writing a monthly investor update three or four months before I raise money, ideally six, if I have the time and the consciousness so that I get good at that. And yeah. that would mean just getting good at investor communications on that level. And that's more earlier stage, but still relevant later. If you're later, then I would also do like at least two or three mock board decks and find your feel of this. And I think those are the things that are super, 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 super hard yeah. for some people, not a lot of people, but enough where I get annoyed, honestly, every time someone replies 
when I talk about investor updates and how you should do them monthly. But the people that respond because they're like, no, I shouldn't be doing that work for them or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, just hold on. Public companies need to do this work. Yeah. We are private companies. You're not doing this work for those investors. You're doing this work for yourself so that you can grow up as a business and run a business with clear business communication to give people updates on where you're at and where you're going so they can help you. Yeah. And they can help you, but they only will if you do this. That's it. You're not, it's not a requirement. It it should be though, not from the VCs, but for yourself. Yeah. And like, that's it. It's your own training wheels to figure out whether you are capable of doing what's required once you have investors, which is board meetings, which is investor updates, which is being able to talk to them about your business, even when they're like jumping in from time to time and not always in it. These are challenging things. A lot of it also has to do with who's on the other end, Mm. right? But at the end of the day, if you have your business so to speak, together and can communicate about it. It doesn't really matter who's on the other end. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the biggest unlocks for us was like, we have a board, but it's not, I don't know. I don't think the guys will be offended if I say this. It's not a real board. Like it's not like, like, like it, it's advice. It's, it's, it's working through things. There's some things we have to decide as a board and, and get advice and stuff. And it's very useful. Don't get me wrong. But one of the best things we did was instead of just like hanging out and shooting the we like actually like we have a deck and we go through the deck and it's um, there's a really good podcast we recorded with Halligan uh, from HubSpot on how he thinks about these things. And it's literally what they do with their board decks um, is it's every number that's ever been a problem is there's a chart and they just look through it. They don't spend a lot of time. Sometimes they don't talk about it, but it's literally every number that's ever been a problem. There's these little, they call them like uh, potholes. Like, hey, is there a pothole? Is How's that going? How are collections going? How are these types of things? And obviously, as they grow, it refines a little bit. But all of a sudden, they run into a problem. Now there's a chart, right? Here's where it should be. Here's where it is. Is it tracking correctly? These types of things. Oh, it dipped down a little bit. Let's talk about that. But I think it's so smart because it just, it just provides the basic level of rigor to the company. And I think when you have a basic level of rigor you know, you, you don't have to go overboard. I think there's sometimes there's work for work's sake, but I think it's one of those things that it, it forces you to make sure you've thought about the business enough too. Yeah. I, I, I can't stress it enough to like get practice at that stuff before you raise money and get really good at it. So you feel comfortable with your business and the numbers and, and the strategy and, and the way you describe what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, It changes the game in terms of your ability to manage investors but also your confidence, your own confidence in being able to raise. Yeah. I think what's also interesting, and this has been some of the fear of, I don't know, I think there's some change fear, but it's not, it's not intense. You know, maybe like two years ago is intense, you know, when we may started thinking about this type of thing. I think what's also kind of interesting is like, we've never practiced this. We didn't raise it. We didn't raise a seed round. We didn't raise like an A. We didn't raise a B. Like we're kind of jumping to B, like right or A now. It depends on how you look at the sizes. And so it's one of those things where make it an A. Yeah, make it a B. yeah, of course, right? Just well, you know, jump into whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it a seed, right? You know, because that's that's technically. <laughs> well, there you go. Is, that's right? the way to do it. There you go. Now you're talking. But it's it's just one of those things that when you think about it, ends up being a little daunting, right? 
Cause now it's like, you don't, you haven't made those mistakes that you did when there was an angel and there's tons of angels and like this type of thing. So I don't know. I, th- I think it's, that's definitely something you can work through, you know, with good mentorship advisors, these types of things, but it is something that was kind of, kind of like a little uh, asterisk on thinking through this, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to, you should prepare for it if you're serious, once you're serious about it in a way where you're able to kind of cross those things off. And that, that that's like been the most impactful advice I've given about fundraising for companies that are considering it and have something already that, you know, yeah. puts them beyond a pre-seed or a seed. It's kind of interesting though, too, because one of the companies we have mentioned in the last three weeks, I'll just put it that way. I know about some of their rounds. They have further, I'm not going to say specifics, but for their previous rounds, more than two of their rounds so far, before they announce the previous round, they've already raised the next one. And it's kind of interesting. very common thing. So like they just announced one and they've already like the date of the next round that has already closed on the date they announced the previous one. And then they just kind of like wait because it's kind of the momentum game. And I think it's very much like a media game that they're playing with it, you know, depending on like the milestones of the business. But it is kind of fascinating how there is some media and communication aspects to this that we may kind of like slough off and not really think about. But at the end of the day, there's there's a perception piece of this um, in terms of brand and, you know, brand's important for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it just depends on what tactics you want to use and, and kind of what your style is and also like where you, where you think you can have leverage, right, for your fundraise. And all these things, all these tactics are totally what people do. I just saw that ramp, I think, is essentially saying that there's two rounds happening at the same time. They're they're raising two rounds at one time? It's basically what they said, and one of them's with Stripe. I don't get it. It was on Tech Meme, I think, (laughs) but basically it's like, it's basically even further than what you're saying, which is they're raising two rounds at the same time. I I don't know the details. But they're public about it? Yeah. I I have no idea what the optics are and what the reasoning is. But I guess maybe if one's with Stripe, one's kind of like an exclusive strategic that's probably it's probably very likely something like that but it's actually now being announced in that way if, mm. if that makes sense so that's that's what threw me off which is like oh they're actually saying it and and like you said there's optics mm. media strategy whatever you want to call it around right. that i'm sure or or maybe it's just i mean it's all the truth but it's a way to frame it in a certain way they're also competing with brex which has yeah. raised a whole bunch of money, right? Um, so much so money. That helps you think, too. Because then, yeah. then Brex gets put into the narrative and I'm sure that helps everyone. Where do you think the strategics even, even come Brex. into play? Like where do you think strategics come into play? Strategics tend to follow on. So they don't really come into play beyond like I, ha- I have I have, a, a, a lead uh, and they're going to follow on in the lead. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. That's, that's fine. So most of the time strategics are doing that. Yeah. I think there are some strategics like Stripe and even in some cases, I think Salesforce more back in the day, but like, they'll just lead the round that has some issues with it around like, well, does that mean you have to sell to them and all that? But I think a lot of those things have been sorted out over the years in terms of that, just not being a big deal, but yeah, strategic has totally come into play here, but they come into play in in that way. Do you think, so for someone like us, like if we raised cash and Stripe Ventures was in like Zora Ventures was in or something like that, does that alienate all of our other partners? I've seen that kind of happen. Yeah. I don't think so. It just depends on like what information rights they have and some of those things, you know, at the end of like tactically, but this is a common thing. Yeah. What do you think about like, here's, here's actually interesting. There's something that comes off of this. So fast one click checkout company, right? Yep. So Stripe's in 
their seed or A or early round. I think they, they led early round. This latest round, the $100 million round, Stripe's a part of as well. But Stripe also releases a one-click checkout. And I know this was like, like, like obviously- Wait, did the they do that? Yeah. <laughs> so like the initial reaction was kind of like, why would they do this, right? And then I was like, is it is it a spread bet? But I, I don't know why they would on a spread I bet. Would look at, I, would look, I would look at it the other way. In what sense? Why would they not do it? Why like just just because like why, twenty million why? is nothing to them basically, an additional twenty million is nothing. Like if fast turns out, if it were me, knowing how strategic Stripe is, I, I don't even think it's that. I don't think it's that. I think I think it's just different opportunities, different plays. Yeah, one's independent, one's in Stripe. Yeah, and if it's an if it's a thing that Stripe cares about, then they should do it too, not to hurt fast in particular. Because again. It was fast decision to take Stripe's money too. It was a two-way decision, right? And I would imagine both parties went in super open to this being the thing and the possibility. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. And there there might be plays on the back end that we don't know about between the two that makes sense. That being said, Stripe is super engineering heavy. So all I can imagine is the fast brand mm. is what Stripe won't have. And yeah. there's certain companies advantages with having a brand like Fast independently doing this in addition to Stripe doing it on their own. Yeah, I like it. I think it's tough to think about these things in a way of like an investment makes it so that a company shouldn't be competitive with their investment at this point, especially in the fintech category and the hmm. all the spaces Stripe sort of plays in. Partly because all that fintech, whether it's Stripe or Square or Shopify or Fast or Bolt or whatever of those checkout in-commerce payments category, it is murky, yeah. very murky as to what's the, today, basically as every day goes by, it gets harder to tell the difference between Square and Shopify. It just does. I'm so long and, Square and I just, like I know why, but I'm so long Square and I it, it frustrates me because Jack Dorsey frustrates me so much, but Square just, they keep making the right decisions. And like, everyone's like, oh, Shopify, 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 Shopify. I'm like, no, 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 Square. So you got to understand like what's going on with Square. Oh, I think it's because their pricing is so good. Their pricing is so good. It's not even their, their packaging. Like people don't understand their packaging. And it's just like, as someone, like I've talked to that team a number of times and they got some really smart people on their pricing committee. It's just, they're so good. The excellence there. Yeah. And in the, in the bar is very high. Yeah. It's just very, very, very high from everything I've seen. The retention seen over of there. those execs has been really good. Unlike a Twitter, for example. I also think, I do think that some of the second wave folks, like I'm actually a big fan of Clover as well. Like Clover yeah. is, is I, I think Clover, like when I look at that market, it's, you got a bunch of, and you got like Toast, which is a Boston local and, you know, I love them and everything. But like the execution level of Clover, they're like the second wave like to me, like the second wave behind square. Cause when you look at the rest of them, it's like, I, I want to say that the design aspects of something like Clover versus like a toast don't matter as much. But I think at the end of the day, it's actually everything. I think it's everything because when you're in, when you're in an SMB environment, it, it does help with like acquisition, you know, having a brick versus something else. But I, I, I think it's, it's just one of those things where the user experience aspect allows for the proliferation of the add-ons and allows for the proliferation of basically that product throughout the organization. 
And I don't think the poorly or less well-designed products in that market, even if they've been successful, end up being able to entice the user enough to get enough add-ons to make that business insanely good. And Square does that beautifully. I think Clover does that beautifully. And some of the others, like they have some catching up to do. But that's just a little bit of a fun thesis. Yeah, I like it. I think I'm a big fan of Clover uh, as well, uh, just for that reason. It, it, it's Markets are murky. Opportunities are getting such a huge market. much more. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that that's also like going back to this funding stuff, like markets are bigger than ever. It's crazy. Markets are bigger than ever. The opportunity that every single one of these funded companies that's like well-funded, strong are immense. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what adventure capital is all about. Yeah. I still have my concerns around diligence because some of these, if you did the diligence in a true quantitative method fashion, you might realize that like they're not quite there yet to justify the valuation. But if you take the lens yeah. of heat and traction and brand and then think that a company can pay their way to growth, which is possible, it totally is, yeah. then you're making a bet. But investors are supposed to make those bets. That's their job. Yeah, That's what LPs give them money for, to make crazy outsized bets like that and you can't go wrong on a company that's hot yeah that's that's the key that's the key to a lot of venture investment philosophy that a self-funded founder is going to look at and be extremely allergic to yeah i used to be i used to just not get it this was a long time ago until i really immersed myself in it and raised money for kissmetrics and just learned a lot more in fact i've learned much more after my Kissmetrics journey than before after investing in a lot of companies and yeah. just seeing lots of these large rounds happen firsthand, getting involved in later stage companies in multiple different ways. The ultimate truth here is that nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> and it's and true. we're all just doing the best we can with the information we have at hand. And so I think it's really tough to even be a critic at this point. That's why when I see people criticizing if you haven't been in the seat of an investor in any way, shape, or form, or don't have friends that are, or you haven't like been a founder, especially a founder that's venture-backed and had experiences that are good and bad, which every founder, yeah. no matter how good their business is or whatever rocket ship it is, has had the good and the bad, it is very hard to appreciate the decision-making or lack of decision-making yeah. and diligence that goes into this stuff because nobody really knows what they're doing. We're all making up as we go. And when there's a ton of uncertainty and lots of money running around, this is what happens. Yeah. And there will be mistakes and things will fail. But like, I think we should be celebrating the fact that like things are getting funded and these experiments get to happen and stay on longer. And we get to see what happens because that's what changes the world. Not to get foo-foo or anything, but... It's that capital that changes the world. Sure, maybe one in a thousand or whatever, but it does change the world. Yeah. Honestly, this is, I think, the one part there from a tactical perspective. If you have the means, I invested in, like, for the first time in a couple of companies. I invested in nice. Pipe and Italic. Two nice. companies, like, honestly, like, I, I'm very, like... It's, it's not like I'm investing in something I don't know. Like one, they're both sure. like subscription yeah. changes, these types of things. And, and frankly, it was just to, just to learn. Like, I, and yeah. I think that they'll, they'll both be rather successful, but like sure. I'm okay losing the cash because I'm learning so much about that process just by being on the other side of it. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and costs to get in are so, so down. I thought I was going in being like, oh, this check needs to be of a certain size. 
it's insane nope. like how low the checks are now. Like some of the checks yep. are like a thousand dollars, right? And and yeah, you know, I didn't know this until after I made the investments, so that was exciting. Uh, <laughs> I got to the angel list, and it was like X to Y, and I was right by Y, and I was like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know I could do X, but that's all right. We'll we'll let it ride, and you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I, super. Interesting. I never really invest trying to think I'm going to get an outcome. I invest because I think it's interesting, or I can learn. Yeah. No, that's cool. This is this is specifically early stage. I think later stage is a whole different different ball game. game. All right, let's recap. So let's see here. First, we talked about uh, how everyone is raising so much money, and everyone is is raising an environment that has actually just shifted. And so the whole argument about uh, is this good, is this bad, isn't interesting. It's just it's just a shift. Uh, we also talked about how in a world where there aren't ten x products meaning your product, unless you're in a really specific niche, isn't necessarily going to be 10x better than your competition. Uh, funding is actually more important than ever. And, and what that's done is it created an environment where you can basically be not as good of a product, but have heavy funding and actually win in the market versus a product that may objectively be better, but it's not going to be 10x better. So it doesn't really matter at that point. And what that's created is the ability to create a really great product to support you and your family easier than ever, but it also has created an environment where it's extremely difficult to basically build a, a multi-billion dollar company. And then we also talked about strategic investors, what strategic investors look like, and then ultimately what emotion of raising should look like. Uh, and it should start with you starting to put out investor updates even before you've actually raised money to get yourself in a nice rigorous motion and probably acts as a nice little trust factor with those who you're trying to raise from. Heaton, did I miss, an, miss anything here? No, you got it. All right. Well, thanks, thanks everybody. Convo. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? I forgot what the hype episode, oh, ClickUp. We're going to talk about ClickUp the entire episode next week, which yep. is really a conversation about absorbing a market through just absolutely suffocating it. That's that's basically what the story is going to be. But if you're enjoying these episodes, would love a review. Let us know. Just let us know you're listening. I know a lot of you are downloading it, but let us know you're listening. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review on this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 